following message was given by Tim Abbott on Sunday, March 15th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Good morning. Welcome to Redemption Hill. My name is Tim. I am one of the pastors here. It is, it is a joy uh, to be able to gather together. We are taking the five Sundays we have together in March and talking about what is the church. Why does the church matter? Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, once referred to the church as the dearest place on earth, and so we have stolen that from Spurgeon and put that as the title of this series. This morning, we are tackling the question, where do I belong in the church? Might have asked yourself that question. Might be something that you thought about. What what do I actually fit? What does the church actually mean for for my life? Um, Do I have a part in this? Where do I belong in the church? Maybe your question is not where do I belong, but simply do I belong in the church? This is a heartbreaking question that I think many of us have asked ourselves at some point. For several years, I asked myself this question. My wife and I went through a very difficult time and felt like we had been hurt by the church, hurt by Christians. And so we were hesitant to become a part of the church. And I remember as we visited a a number of churches and it just felt like it was getting worse and it felt more like we weren't fitting in, I just remember thinking, I just don't think I fit in the church. I don't think there's a place for me. I still believe in God. I believe that I need Jesus. But I just don't see anywhere that I actually belong in the church. Not just Redemption Hill, just any church. And so my hope that we can all see today is that the answer to do I belong in the church for those who have trusted in Christ is yes, um, absolutely. And, and if you're thinking, where do I belong in the church, that I hope that God's word will show us today, what, what does it really mean for me to be a member? What does it really mean for me to belong to the church? 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth to address a very immature church. The church is known for divisions, immorality, and a poor understanding of what the church truly is. They seem to assume that there are different classes of Christians, that some are more spiritual than others. Together with this, they seem to assume that certain gifts made some people more essential and more valuable than others. They have taken God's gift of the church and they have made the church what they wanted it to be. They have created it in their own likeness. They have made it what they feel most comfortable in. And it has left some feeling like they do not belong in the church, that they aren't needed in the church. And it left others feeling like they are God's only gift to the church. That as long as the church has them, we're all good. They don't need anything else. There are a number of metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the church. There are five metaphors that are most commonly used. The church is described as God's house. It is described as the temple of God. The church is called the bride of Christ. It is called the family of God. And then the one that we will focus on most today, it is called the body of Christ. For some of you, these are very familiar terms, but I think we often come up far short of living in the beautiful reality that God has created for us. In this chapter in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is using this analogy to help us understand how the local church is designed to function. It is a group of people who share the same life, who belong to the same Lord, who are filled with the same spirit, who are given gifts by that same spirit, who have the same savior and who are intended to function together 
to build and strengthen the church and to make disciples of all nations. That is the work of the church. That is the power of the church. That is the power that unites us and creates one body. For some of you, you hear those words that Brian read earlier talking about the body of Christ and you think, yes, all Christians are members of one another. All people all over the world are a part of the body of Christ. That's what that means. Um, so I, that doesn't mean anything to me here in Richmond, specifically to a specific church. I, I don't need to be a member of a specific church. Um, it is true that all Christians everywhere are a part of the body of Christ. This is what Ephesians 1 is talking about. Um, Ephesians 1 put, puts it this way. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all all in all. So yes, absolutely. Everyone who is, who is a believer and trusting in Christ is a part of the larger church. But we don't want to miss the local specific implications of this. This letter here in 1 Corinthians is written to a specific local church, a local group of people to teach them what it is to actually be the body of Christ, to teach them what it is to be members of one another. Some of you functionally think Yes, I get it. You know, I, I, I'm, I, the eye and the ears, man, I totally understand that. You know, I feel like I'm the eye and my buddy in Colorado, he's the ears. My friend from Colorado, he's, he's, he's the feet. Um, I will tell you something right now. I'm not very good at anatomy. Uh, biology is not something I did well in, in college. Um, so I'm not equipped to give you an anatomy lesson, so I won't. But I do know enough to tell you that's not how bodies work. Um, if your eye is in Virginia and your ears are in Colorado and your feet are up in New York, you don't have a good functioning body. Um, Paul was writing this letter in 1 Corinthians to a specific local church to help them see that they needed each other to function the way God intended them to. Paul wrote this specifically to the church at Corinth to teach them how they were to see each other, how they were supposed to act towards one another, and how they were supposed to function together. Paul is writing this to help the church understand what it means to be members of one another. I know some of you still bristle at the idea of church membership. You don't know if it's biblical. You don't know if it's meaningful. I, I was in that place for a number of years. We have a class called Membership Matters, and you just think, I don't know that it actually does. Um, in these verses that Brian read earlier, Paul uses the word member eight times and builds a compelling vision for what it means to be a member of a local specific church. He shows us that the church is a family. It is a functioning body of diverse people with diverse gifts that would only come together, work together, care for one another if that family is brought together and sustained by the power and grace of God with Jesus as the head of that. God is creating a reality with his church that is greater and more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. Jesus is the one building his church. God is building that church, and that is more beautiful than we could ever come up with. What we are called to is, is, is to not build the church just how we want it to be, just how we like it to be. Jesus is building in his church, and he is making it beautifully diverse. And we should learn to live and enjoy the reality that he has created, to enjoy the church that he is building. Paul says in verses 12 through 14, just as the body is one and has many members, all the members are of, of, of one body, though many are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
So God is building his church, and that church is a diverse body of believers. As a church, we don't do enough to live in the reality that God has created. Part of the reason is that we are too easily satisfied with relationships that on the outside make complete sense. People that look like us, same color of skin, wear the same brand of clothes that we do, have the same number of kids we do, and the same square footage in their house. There's, there's nothing wrong with having friends that are similar to you, but for some of us, we go out of our way to avoid people that we look at and say, we're just too different. We're never going to be friends. We're never going to be meaningful to one another. If we do that, then we aren't trusting God's design of his church. If he is building a place that people with different backgrounds, different nationality, different race come together, if he is building his church out of those people, differing gifts, differing talents, then we need to trust him enough to show hospitality, to build community, to serve alongside of people that are different than us. For most of us, we tend to pick who our most functional members are based on finding people that are the most similar to us. It is very natural. It is, what, it is what almost all of us do. If you struggle with this, I get it. It is very human to struggle with this. To be honest, most of the early churches were struggling with this. The church at Corinth was and the church at Rome was. In Paul's letter to, to, to Rome, he says in Romans 3, verses 29 and 30, he asked them, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. The fact that he has to spell this out for them shows where they weren't embracing this diversity. He has to ask them, is God the God of Jews only? Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. What Paul is saying is that there is only one way for each and every person in the world to be made right with God, to become a part of the church, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. God is saving Jews and Gentiles. God is saving people that don't naturally get along. God is saving people that apart from him wouldn't like each other. And Paul is telling the church, you need to quit acting like you are the only members of the body of Christ. You need to quit functioning like you are the only members of the body of Christ. The body is not just made up of the Jews. Quit acting like it is. The most meaningful similarity in your life now is that you needed Jesus and Jesus saved you. Jesus made you a part of his family. And that is a greater reality than any of your outward differences. We are the body of Christ. And there will be lots of different kinds of people. And when people look at the church, they should look and ask, what brings this together? What makes this happen? You guys have nothing in common. How does this work? So then there is nothing about our skin color, nothing about our ethnic background that is actually a good reason for there to be separation between God's people. And if there isn't a good reason for there to be separation, then we need to do more than just tolerate people who are different. We need to do more than just acknowledge that, yes, there are some Christians in the world that are different than us. We need to see that there's a joyful, wonderful way of figuring out how to live together in light of what God has done for each of us. God's goal in creating a diverse church is not just to get everyone into, that, into the same place. It's not to just get everybody into the same building. That might be progress, but that's not the goal. Paul's purpose is to get those people who used to have nothing in common to start caring for one another. Paul's purpose is to get those people to start using their God-given gifts together for the building up of the church. To get those very different groups of people to see that they are a part of one body. 
one Savior, one Spirit, one Father that is over all of us and in all of us. This is what brings them together. There is one church. Paul's purpose is to get both sides to see that they need each other, that you are not a whole body without each other. I love the question he asked in verse 19. He says, if all were a single member, if all were exactly the same, where would the body be? If everyone was the same, where would the church be? Without each other, you're a bunch of feet running around like you're fine without the rest of your body. You can't pick up anything. You can't see anything. You can't hear anything, but you're just fine. So what, is it, what does it mean to live in the reality that God is creating? What I'm not necessarily saying is to go this afternoon and find somebody that you look at and say, you're the most different from me. Let's hang out. Um, that's an awkward way to go about it. Um, but so, so if, you've, if, see, if you've seen the movie, Remember the Titans, uh, it's a great movie. There's this scene in the movie where the, where the black teammates and the white teammates all really dislike each other. And so they're playing bad football. And Denzel Washington gets up while they're eating lunch and makes a speech like only Denzel can, can do where, where everybody watching it just says, I'm going to do whatever he says at the end of this. Um, and so he gets up and he says, You've, you've got to start spending time with each other. You've got to get to know each other. And, and we're going to go start practicing four times a day until you start doing this. And in about 10 minutes, they have broken down all racial lines except for one guy who is clearly a 40-year-old man playing a teenager. Um, and then they get that guy off the team and they go on to win the state championship. And it's great. It's awesome. Um, I'm not telling you to exactly do that. We don't want to make this just, just awkward and weird. You don't need to just go find the people you just say, I really don't want to spend time with you. So Tim said I had to. Um, that's not what we're going for. What I'm saying is that to be a member of a local church isn't about finding the most comfortable spot in the most comfortable place with the most similar looking people all around you. We can and should take steps towards people who are different from us. We can and should be aware of what God is doing and then realizing that if, if God has created his body in this way, then we need each other. Verse 21 says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We cannot simply look at someone and look at their outward appearance and, and say to them, look at them through our earthly eyes and say, I don't need you in my life. That is not what the Christian does. So what could that look like? It could look like sitting in a different spot on Sunday morning and talking with somebody that you don't normally talk to. You make plans to go out to lunch together. We've been talking a lot about hospitality lately, so it could look like when you see a guest, you don't immediately determine based on what they look like whether or not you could be friends. You don't take one look at them and think, we're never going to have a meaningful relationship. We're just too different. But instead, you understand and believe that, that when God told us in Hebrews 13 to make sure that we are showing hospitality to the stranger, that he didn't have in mind show hospitality to the stranger if they're similar enough to you, if they look enough like you, if they have enough things in common with you. He actually says if you show hospitality to the, to the stranger, you might get to hang out with an angel. I won't tell you what that means. I'm just going to put it out there so that you're encouraged. Um, it might mean that when you go to, to Holton Perk, or we have the potluck later this month, that you don't immediately go for the people that you know the best and are most comfortable around. It might mean inviting some people into your community group that are different from you. God is building a diverse church, and we should want to live in the reality of that. As Christians, we should never let our own comfort, 
our fear of things different than us keep us from living in the reality that God has created. Keep you from welcoming, building community, working alongside men and women, brothers and sisters different from yourself. And so Paul is now going to teach them what that looks like. To teach them that God has built and is building a, a diverse church that needs one another. So we shouldn't say that we are not needed. That we don't belong. We should not say those words. We should not say that we don't have a place in the church. That we don't have a place in the body. He says in verse 14. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, I'm not an eye, so I'm not a part of the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? It is easy to think that the only real work of the church is gathering together here on Sunday morning and having a great meeting. That is essential. That is a huge part of what we do. But if that is the only real work happening, then, then the people who lead these meetings are the ones who have the most useful gifts. Everyone else is left watching them, looking at them, saying that person is clearly important to the church. I can't do any of those things, so I have no real part to play in the church. It would be easy to look at Robert preaching, Brett leading worship, others singing and playing instruments, to see them and say, I can't do that, I can't do that, and I definitely can't do that. It would be easy to think that the church needs them but would be fine without me. Verse 18 of chapter 12 has God's answer to that. Paul says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. God specifically and purposefully chose your gifts and made you a part of his body. If you are a part of the body of Christ, you are needed, you are not unimportant. You have been uniquely gifted, uniquely placed by God. If you are thinking, I'm not important, then you won't use the gifts that God has given you. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So there's different gifts, and that is all God's grace to us. Then let us use them. Let us use those gifts. Those words, I am not needed. This church can get along without me. My gifts are not important. These are lies that we tell ourselves. These are lies that the enemy uses to deceive us and keep us from doing the work that God has called us to. When you think you are not important, when you think you are not needed, when you think you don't have any gifts or the gifts that you don't have don't matter, you, you, are, you are letting lies defeat you from doing the work that God has called you to. It's not, it's not just insecurity. It's not just putting yourself down. You are not trusting in God's wisdom. You are not trusting in God's plan. You are a part of God's plan for the church. It is not just that you need the church, which you do, but God has built the church so that you are needed. Your gifts are needed. You have convinced yourself in your insecurity that God made a mistake, that the God who created all things, sustains all things, has redeemed his people, can work all things together for good. That same God just didn't put that much effort into you. That same God just didn't think about your gifts and whether it was important for you to be a part of this. The gifts that you have are given by God, are, are a piece of who God is and what he wants for his church. They've been given by God, 
by his grace, and he has a plan for them. He has a purpose for them. He wants you to use them for the building up of his church, for the strengthening and maturing of his people, for the spread of the gospel. So use your gifts. We want you to use your gifts. That's what makes it so important that you commit, you serve, you care, you contribute, you use gifts that God has given you because he has placed you where you're at. He has placed you here, hopefully. He has placed you here, so use your gifts. The church is strengthened and grown by you committing and devoting yourself to the church in that way. Here's a small example. There are people who have the gift of encouragement. The gift of encouragement is not one that we put up on stage every, every Sunday morning um, and say, okay, instead of doing the, the passing of the peace this week, uh, we're going to ask uh, uh, Lee to come up here and do two minutes of encouragement. Um, I, he'd be great at it, and some of you would be all in because the passing of the peace is out. Um, but, but, but that's not what we've done. The gift of encouragement is something that is very specific. It hears someone discouraged and knows the truth that they need to hear and knows how to say it and when to say it. That is a unique gifting. God wants us all to encourage one another. We're told to encourage one another. But there are some people who can't help but encourage you. They're actually good at you, good at it. Some of you aren't very good at it. Um, Somebody shares with you how discouraged and down they are, that they're having trouble believing God is for them. And you pat them on the shoulder and say, man, that sounds tough. (laughs) And that's the best you got. That's as good as it gets from you. And you walk away and think, that was, I feel pretty good about that. We can all agree, maybe not you, but we can all agree that is not your spiritual gift. You do not have the gift of encouragement. But some of you, God has specifically gifted in this way. I live with one of those people. My wife, Jen, is by far the most encouraging person I know. It's not even close. And I don't, I don't just mean that she's happy and always smiling. I mean, genuine reminds you of who you are in Christ and what God has done for you and what that means for your life, kind of encouraging. Um, by nature, I tend to be very easily discouraged, easily disappointed in myself. I overthink, overanalyze everything, and I kind of like doing it. And so God just put the most encouraging person in the world in my home, and it kind of drives me crazy. Um, if you are easily discouraged, you know you don't hear encouragers well. It is super frustrating when all I want to do is think the worst about myself, my situation. I just want to replay conversations in my head and get angry for no good reason. I just want to be discouraged. And then there's somebody right there ready to encourage me, gifted by God with a gift of encouragement. And I'm left with just like, ah, I don't really believe what you're saying, but I guess I have to listen to you because you're my wife. Um, but what, and, and the beauty of this is that she hears someone speaking lies about themselves, believing lies about who God is, and she says, no, here's the truth. And she says it in a way that builds you up and you feel like, man, that would be great if it were true. But it's not. Um, no, it is often. <laughs> that encouragement helps you to start believe and trusting in God's truth in your life. That gift may never be on stage. But we need each and every person who is gifted in that way to be involved in the life of the church, to be active as a part of the body. Otherwise, we're all going to be so discouraged that we never do anything. So we need you serving, contributing, sacrificially giving of your time, your gifts, your passions. Here at Redemption Hill, we need each one of us serving in some way on Sunday mornings. It builds unity as the body to serve together. So we need you helping, 
serving, contributing, leading in worship, setting chairs up, breaking chairs down, teaching our kids. We need you to be doing these things. And then we need you in meaningful, intentional relationships with one another. Maybe that is in a specific Redemption Hill community. Maybe that is a, with a group that you meet with consistently, but we need you in those, in those meaningful relationships using the gifts that God has given you. You are needed. And God grows and strengthens his church by using you, using your gifts. You are, you are needed, but you also need others. Paul says in verses 21 and 22, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You are not self-sufficient. Some of you believe that. Some of you think that way, but none of you are, and you were never intended to be. We are such prideful, self-centered creatures, and our culture and our way of life encourages a primary way of living that is self-centered. We rarely would look at someone and say the words, I don't need you. We would never say the words, you're weak and not really that important, and I have no need of you. But our lives and our actions are saying this all the time. For most Christians, we still primarily think about what it means to be saved by God in a self-centered way. We think about what it means for us personally, and it does mean a lot to us personally. But then, if we only think about it in that way, then we get to determine what it means for others. We get to decide what, if anything, it means for the sake of the church. And so we will only make minor concessions. We will only make small sacrifices for the sake of the church. We will only give a small amount of our time, passions, gifts for the building up of God's people. And while we have some idea of what we think it means to be made a part of the family of God, it almost always falls short. What God has actually done to make us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, falls well short of what it actually means that we have been made a functioning body. We've been made part of the body of which Christ is the head. Joseph Hellerman, a pastor in California, wrote a book entitled When the Church Was a Family. And in there he wrote this. He says, we have been taught to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group. So we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up. When the going gets rough in the church or in the home, God in Jesus' great work of redemption was not establishing a series of isolated personal relationships with his individual followers. He was creating a family of sons and daughters, siblings who are now all one in Christ Jesus. It means so much to you personally. You should personally thank God every day, but God has made you a part of something, a part of something that is his. You are a member of a functioning body. You cannot look at the other parts of the body and say, I have no need of you. The Jews in Corinth were a part of the same body that the Gentiles were. So he was telling the Jews, you cannot say to the Gentiles, I have no need of you. Gentiles, you cannot say to the Jews, we don't need you. Those who are wealthy can't look at the poor and say, we'll be fine without you. You can't look at them and say, I can clearly help you. You clearly need me, but I don't need you. Our pride, our self-sufficiency, and our prejudice are all at work in us to make us look at other members of God's church and say, I have no need of you. 
If you don't know me well, one thing that is uh, true about me is that I generally like people. Uh, I enjoy in t- talking and getting to know people. It actually takes a lot for me to not like you. I've been in conversations here at Redemption Hill before, and in the middle of me talking, someone will just walk away. Um, and my thought usually is, they're probably right. I wasn't very interesting, but they're awesome. I would have walked away from me too. Um, it takes a lot for me to get, a lot to get me to not like you. So I'm going to now put a picture up on the screen of the person that I like the least. Not here at Redemption Hill, um, but I want you to, to see this, this person. Hopefully, um, you'll jump up there. There he is. Um, his name is Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr., I mean, come on. (laughs) He's the quarterback for the New England Patriots, winner of six Super Bowls, and just universally disliked by every reasonable person. (laughs) You don't get three sentences into his Wikipedia page without having to read this. Due to his numerous records and accolades, many sports writers, commentators, and players consider Brady to be the greatest quarterback of all time, which clearly shows you that Tom Brady wrote his own Wikipedia page. But I will concede that there are some people that think he's a good quarterback. But even as good as Tom Brady thinks he is, if he looked at the rest of his team and said to them, I'm the best. I don't need you guys. I'm not just the best quarterback. I'm the best on defense, the best wide receiver. If he was to say those things, we've got actual uh, images of of him trying to play those uh, those other positions. I think it's important that you see them. Okay, so this is him trying to play defense. He is miles away from that man. I don't know why he even jumped on the ground, but he was clearly not going to touch that man blowing by him. There's another one of him playing defense. This is great. I can do this all day. Um, this, is, this is just him lying on the ground as, as a an attempt to play defense. Um, it's, it's a wonderful attempt. Uh, we've got one more of him trying to play wide receiver. Um, you can see here, my favorite thing about this is not just that he misses the ball, it's that his hands come together as if he were wrapping around the ball, uh, as if it was right there. It's such a bad attempt. Um, he's a really bad football player. Um, <laughs> but if he were to say, Listen, guys, I don't need any of, any of the other guys on the team. I'm not just the best quarterback. I'm the best receiver. I'm the best on defense. I don't need anyone but me. He knows and everyone else knows the Patriots would lose every game a thousand to nothing. Um, not only does he need other people around him, but he needs people who are different from him, people who are good at things that he is not good at. He's got to believe in those people, trust them, rely on their gifts, their talents, or else his team will lose, will lose absolutely every game, uh, which I would love. We cannot say to one another that I have no need of you. We need to believe that if God has determined that this is how his body works, then when we look around this church, when we look around and see the people around us, we don't just see potential friends. We don't just look and see people that we might get along with or might not. We don't just look at each other and, and, and think, maybe I'll get to know them someday. We should look around and look at each other and say, for some reason, Maybe God only knows, but for some reason, these people are essential to my life. These people are essential for my well-being, for for, for my maturing, for the sake of this church. These people are essential for the building up of God's body, for me to grow and mature and to become more like Christ. So I need to go all in on this. What does that all in look like? It starts with consistently and faithfully gathering together. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is getting more and more important every day to meet together, to gather together. Gathering together consistently and faithfully shows that we realize that, that we all need each other. We need to be reminded. We need Christ. For some of you, you think that means, you can, you can define it for yourself. You think that means coming once or twice a month on Sundays. For some of you, if you're not doing something with the church five times a week, then you feel like you've neglected the church. The author doesn't tell us how, what that exactly looks like, how often that is. But earlier on in that same letter in Hebrews, we're told, exhort one another daily as long as it is called today. So there is some aspect of the church, some aspect of the body, some part of Christian fellowship that you need every day. I'm not saying that the answer to how often you do this is daily, but I'm also not saying that the answer is whenever you feel like it will be helpful for you, whenever you feel like you can pull it enough together to, to, to show up. I know that feeling. I felt it this morning. Um, I feel it consistently. Um, but that is, that is not it. You need... You need to be meeting together. You need to come together and worship with God's people. You need to be gathering together to hear the gospel taught and proclaimed. You need to be served communion and reminded of what God has done for you. You need to be meeting together with members of his church throughout the week to pray and care for one another. God has built and is building a church and the individual members of that church have been given gifts that are needed to help one another grow strong, to grow, help one another grow to become what God has intended us to be. And that need is best met by committed, faithful members gathering together and using their gifts for the building up of the church so that we can care for one another, so that we can depend on one another. God has made us members of one another, and so we get to care for one another. Close to the end of this passage, Paul says in verse 25, that there be, may be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for each other. He could have said, let there be no division in the body, but perfect unity. Let there be no division, but agree with one another. He doesn't say that. He says that there may be no division in the body so that the members should have the same care for one another. If you are divided, then you can't care for one another. Don't let your differences divide you. You are needed you need others. You need to be cared for and you need to be caring for others. And if there is a division, you won't care. He gives us immediately one of the tangible ways that this plays out. Right here in the text, Paul gives a, t a tangible result of what it means to be a part of the body. A tangible response to living in this reality. He says, if one member suffers, all suffers together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We need to care for one another, be so united that we hurt or suffer when one of us suffers. We should rejoice when one of us is honored or is rejoicing. We've done this this past week and we've heard about Shelby and, and Carrie and the hurt that the Murphy family is going through. So many of you have felt this hurt, have felt this happen, have figured out ways to care for them, have figured out ways to pray for them. You've felt the pain, but this isn't easy or natural. If we even get close to this, most of the time it's with people that we're really close to, people that are our closest friends or family. And so 
many times when I hear somebody rejoicing, my immediate response isn't, I'm rejoicing with you. My immediate response is, why isn't that me? Why didn't that happen to me? I become envious. I get, I get resentful that, that God, that good things always seem to happen to someone else. We are, we are self-centered by nature, and so it's not easy to care about others in this way. And it certainly isn't easy when the people you are supposed to care about in this way, to care about this deeply, this intimately for, are so different from you, are so diverse. It is hard when the people that you're supposed to rejoice with them that are rejoicing and weep with them that weep aren't just your closest friends. They, they aren't even people that you would naturally spend time with. For this to be a reality, then you are going to have to get to know people. You're going to have to know their struggles, know their difficulties, know their, know their victories, know their background, know how God has worked and is working in their lives. For this to be a reality, you're going to have to care. And as simple as that sounds, we just can't force ourselves to care about someone that we don't care about. We need Jesus to even make us care, to increase our love, to increase our compassion, to increase our kindness, to increase our ability to care about others. We're going to need to remember how Jesus has cared for us so perfectly, how he has carried our burdens, how he's taken that on even before we cared about him, even before we cared about anything that he had to say or anything that he had done, he cared for us that that perfectly. We are all going to need something much greater than any of us to make this possible. And so Paul says, you are the body of Christ. This is verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ. God God has made us members of one another and we desperately need Jesus to bring unity to this body. We We have so many differences. There's so many things that separate us. In, in this church, they, they had different races, different, different ethnicities, different classes of people. Some people don't think they are good enough for the rest of the body, and some people think they are too good for the body. They're filled with sin. They're filled with, with prejudice. That is not a good recipe for a functioning body. Some of you have heard me say before that one of my favorite areas of American history to study is the American West. In the mid to late 1800s, rumors were spreading of gold being in the hills, of treasure being hidden in the mountains in the West. And so basically what happened was a bunch of former criminals, current criminals, and people who just couldn't make it in the East all started going West to find their fortune. And there was no real law out there. And so all these people are shooting each other. They hate each other. They're stealing each other's cows. Um, they're competing with, the, with each other to find their own personal treasure. And then all of a sudden, we just have California. Um, <laughs> no offense to California. Uh, the, the church is a little bit like the American West. A bunch of sinners who don't get along, didn't like each other beforehand, self-centered, possessive, prideful, are suddenly all thrown together. And it's not just that we need to not hate each other and, and not, not kill each other. God looks at those groups and says, I'm going to make you saints. I, I'm going to take sinners and make them saints. And you will be one body, one family. And I will be the head of that. You are now the body of Christ. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can bring this together in this way. Only Jesus can break down these walls that separate us. Only Jesus can break down these things that would otherwise divide us and bring such unity 
not just break them down, but bring us together then so that we actually care for one another. We hurt when other members of the body are hurting. We rejoice when other members of the, of the body are rejoicing. We're using our gifts for the sake of the body. Nothing but the effective call of our Savior and common faith in Jesus could bring such people together. The same is true today as it was then. Jesus alone can unite people in these various backgrounds who hold varying opinions and varying gifts into one body, into service for the sake of the church. It is Jesus that makes us needed. And it is the gospel that reminds us that we are in desperate need. So we should see the church and the people in it as an amazing gift. The only way that we're going to be able to do this, the only way that we're going to be able to do this is if we actually remember I wasn't actually ever intended. I I wasn't actually ever just naturally fitting into the church. I didn't just belong naturally to the church. Sometimes we think that in our head. I I was always going to be good for the church, Jesus or not. I always belong there. But others don't don't fit as naturally as, as I do. Unless we remember that apart from Christ, none of us belong here. None of us fit in. None of us have the ability to, to make this good and what God intends it to be. Unless we remember that it is God and God alone and sending his son into this world to save us, to make us a people. We were not a people and God has made us a people. We were not his people, but God has made us a family. We were not together, but God has united us together as one body. That is all what he has done. And unless we remember that, then we will still look at other people. We will look at other things and we will say, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we actually need you. I'm not sure I actually need you in my life. But if we remember those things, if we remember all that God has done for us, then, then we, will, we will see that. We will embrace that. We will love that. And we will see that in others and say, if you've been saved and transformed by the power of God, then then not just we're, we hope that you're here, but we need you. I need you. I need you as a part of my life, and you need me as a part of your life. I encourage you, if you're not a member, become a member. If you're not serving, start serving. Do it because God has given you everything. Do it because in Jesus, you now have life. Remember that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. But in him, you have life. Commit and live as part of the body of Christ. To do it, we got to remember that all of this is a gift from God, that we have been saved from the power and penalty of our sin, and that is a gift of God. When we were separated, his amazing grace came in, and he takes us from the depths. He takes us from death and transforms us into life. Ephesians 2 tells us that we have been raised up with Christ and seated in the heavenly places with him. And that's just not me. That's, that's everyone that's been transformed by him. That's everyone that's been saved by him, seated in the heavenly places with him. So let's enjoy that seat. Let's realize what it means to be in that place. We are taken from the depths and placed together with Christ for all eternity. So we need to always remember, always be reminded of that. And so each week we take communion together. We take communion to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. In a moment you will come and other members of the body will serve you communion. Other members of the body will speak truth into your life, reminding you that you need Christ. Saying to you that the body of Christ was given for you. And the blood of Christ was shed for you. And for those that have trusted in Christ, you will take that bread and dip it into that juice and remember all that he has done for you. Turning away from your sin and trusting in him fully. 
For those who have not trusted in, in him fully, take the next couple of minutes and reflect on your life. Reflect on who God is, on, on what it means to need Christ. Reflect on that. Think about that and turn to him. Turn to him with all of your heart. Say that I need you. I can't do this on my own. I need you. We would love to talk to you more about that. We would love to talk to you about what that means, that transformative power. So take this time and do that. And, and then watch as the body of Christ as members of the, of the body of Christ come again and again, responding to God, responding to what he has done for them, and remembering that and trusting in that fully. Watch as they come forward um, and, and, and then trust in him. Trust in him with all of your life. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for what you have done um, to, to build your church, uh, to form your church. Thank you that you have given so much to make this happen. So, Father, I pray that you would remind us at all times um, that, it is, that it is yours, that you have done a perfect and beautiful and wonderful job, um, and that we don't need to just form it into our own image. We don't need to take it and do with it just whatever we like, but that we would live in the beauty of what you have created. Father, thank you that you have built a beautiful, diverse church full of gifts that are diverse, full of talents that are diverse, full of people that are different. Um, we thank you that you have brought us together. We thank you for the unity that you can create. And we, we pursue that. We seek after that. Uh, we ask that you would do an amazing work in making that happen in our body here at Redemption Hill. Um, we ask that you would use us uh, to proclaim your glory, to shine a light uh, to, to, to those who don't know you, that you would do an amazing work through the people here at Redemption Hill, through your body. Um, we ask all these things and, and ask that you would help us and, and encourage us to live in light of it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Tim Abbott given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at redemptionhill.com.